Revelation 21, and I'll read verses 1 through 7. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. Father, we thank you for this uh, picture of uh, the vision that John had that day long ago. And we thank you, Lord, that it is yet for a future time and we will be a part of it. We ask you to open our minds and I pray, Lord, that you would guide my lips, that I would speak the truth in Christ's name. Amen. So you may sit down. The title of the, t- of the sermon is Eternal Life. And uh, I wanted to do a series because I have uh, two messages, one today and then one in two weeks, and uh, as Mike will, starting next week. And uh, I didn't decide on my series though until about 10 days ago, so I was feverishly studying over the last 10 days. And, and Friday night I was thinking, why on earth did I pick this topic? But... Uh, uh, many of you know that I work at UP, and I've been there 15, 16 years. And uh, the old UP headquarters building was just destroyed over the last year. It was torn down because they put the new one up in 04. And uh, in the old one, I would walk in through the lobby, and I would walk along this bank of elevators. And I wouldn't use any of the main elevators because my office was on the fourth floor in what they called a little annex that had been built like probably 50, 60 years earlier in between the two other buildings back in the back. And so I would go back and take this service elevator kind of, hidden elevator in the back. But along that uh, hallway, there was a picture, and I remember the first time I saw it, I was really surprised. Uh, it was a picture that was probably at the time, you know, 80, 90 years old. It's probably like the early 1900s, late 1800s. But it's of a boy, a young man. He's probably 14, 15 years old. And he's standing with a, like a leather apron, and he's in work garb. And he obviously was an employee of the UP, and he's working in a, in a uh, heavy equipment environment. He's, you know, uh, and he's just got this little grin on his face, and he's looking over at the camera. But I thought, that looks just like me. It was really weird. I mean, I'd never seen me, you know, in a big picture like that. But I thought, I mean, you could take my ninth grade picture and probably look right there, and it's like, wow, you'd think that was me. And I thought it was so odd that it's here hanging on the UP wall. I don't know where it is now. Who knows? Uh, they take all the artifacts. UP has so many 
museum pieces. But anyway, I am fascinated by old pictures, and so that one in particular. But there was another one also, and it's still, you can see it, it's down in the Brandeis building in the basement. And uh, that one is just very simple, but it's just they blow them up so big, and then they put them on display. And I think I've shown one or two of you, I forget. I, you know, I, I have lunch sometimes with guys, and I'll point it out to them if I remember. But uh, it's a day, I think it's an October day in 1927, and it's a picture of all these people at a, at a sale at the Brandeis Building downtown department store. And when I look at that, I just can't help but wonder, you know, where are all these people? You know, they're all dead pretty much. That was 80 years ago. And the people I'm looking at, there are very few children in it, mostly women, probably 25 to 60 or so. And uh, they're all looking up at the camera. And some of them look like they're all stressed out about their purchases or whatever. You know, not many are smiling. But some are. They're smiling up and they're having a good time. But where are they? Do they know their picture hangs on the wall in the basement of the Brandeis for all to see? Uh, I don't know. I mean, you know, in part, we don't know because that's beyond the grave. It's kind of hidden from us. And so, yet, there are things we can know. And it's important for us to know what we can know. That was interesting, isn't it? Okay. Uh, about every three seconds, given the population of this earth, someone dies. And so three people per second, that amounts to 250,000 people per day, 90 million per year. That's on average. During the service, about 20,000 people will die. And all these people will pass through the narrow or the wide gate, right, that Christ spoke of. They all go through one of those two gates at death. They're all headed to heaven, or they're headed to what, at 12, I called H-E double toothpicks. Does anybody know that phrase? When I was 12, I bought a calculator. I mean, they just came out when I was 12. It was like 1973. And uh, I paid 20 bucks for a six-character LED calculator. It had this beautiful red display that used a battery like every six minutes. <laughs> and uh, I'd type in... 0.7734, and then I'd turn it upside down and show my friends, and it said hello. But then if you didn't put the zero dot, if you just typed 0.7734 and turned it upside down, it said hell. And uh, the first time I found that out, I thought, oh, this is cool, because I tried hello, but I didn't realize dropping the O off hello meant hell. So then it's like, oh, i got to show all my friends that. But that's pretty much the extent of my theological training in my youth. It was whatever, it was whatever I picked up. You know, I, I was from an unbelieving home. But uh, given that we have three seconds, three people per second passing into hell, and they're going through one of these two gates, I can see why the Roman Catholics developed this concept of purgatory. It's a very desirable thing to ease your conscience about your worries, about whether people are going to heaven or hell. You think... Oh, there's another opportunity. It's kind of like uh, when your hero about goes over the cliff. It's like, you know, we're so accustomed to this now. No, nah, he didn't go over the cliff. You know, he's over there hanging onto a branch. You know, we know this. We're accustomed to this. And so we don't want it to be that basic, one or the other. We think there must be some option. And I, I believe that's why. I mean, Roman Catholics, I think a lot of their policies or, you know, their beliefs are kind of practical in a way. You know, they, they fit us as a people, as a fallen people. You know, another thing that I was thinking of with this, three people per second, is that's a lot of people, you know? What did they do in heaven before computers were developed? You know, that's a lot of people pouring in there. How are they processing all those people? 
What did they do before computers? I don't know. I, I could imagine, can you imagine being at the DMV and having three people per second hitting a line there? You know, I mean, it's bad enough when we struggle in every few minutes. So also another thing that kind of you can make light of, you know, that I do it. I mean, this is just how my wife and I think, I think. And we've kind of trained our children to all think this way too. But uh, could you imagine hell is like being at the wrong line in the DMV? You know, you show up and you get in the line and you get up to the window and they say, I'm sorry, sir, you're in the wrong line. And, you know, and then you just one to the other to the next and back and forth. Whereas I think of heaven as when I was at Universal and you could get that fast path thing. I'm, a, I'm going on a ride. I'm blowing past all these people in the long line. I'm having fun, you know. And they're all stuck. They're all stuck in that line, you know. So it, it's easy to make light, and I think I know why. It's just so hard for us to fathom this. We can't wrap our imaginations around what the afterlife will be like. And so I think that's why many of us don't really try. I can't say that I have. Um, over the years, I've not really tried to study heaven. I've been wanting to read Randy Alcorn's book for two years. I asked Mrs. Kaiser if she'd read it a couple of years ago. I said, oh, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll read it or I'll ask you to read it. I haven't read it. I know Pastor Kaiser's reading it now. He's enjoying it very much. But I still haven't done so. And even when I picked this topic 10 days ago, I thought, well, I can't get it now. I mean, you know, that'd be so much pressure. It's hard enough to produce a sermon, let alone also have to read this book and get it all in there. So I had to just make stuff up. You know, I can't, can't go from the book. So uh, Randy Alcorn suggests, though, that Satan steals our joy and that that's why we really don't cogitate on what heaven will be like because Satan doesn't want us doing that. And so he is, he is bent on taking our joy away from us. And there are scriptures that point at what Satan attacks, and he attacks God, his name, his home, and his people. So this seems to fit into that category of why we might be opposed in this regard. Um, I think I've mentioned before, and I guess it's just, you know, it's one of our most uh, enjoyable vacations perhaps, but uh, my wife and I went to Hawaii in 1991, and Rachel was three, and so Rachel came. And yet in preparation for that trip, I read my wife James Mishner's book, Hawaii. That book's 963 pages. I read her a 1,000-page book in preparation for a 12-day trip. It's a lot of preparation, I think, you know, to kind of familiarize yourself with the history and the culture of that island. But in all this time of being a Christian, 25 years, I've not really studied heaven. And so that's just kind of odd. Randy Alcorn has an interesting statistic. Uh, he founded a, an organization called Eternal Perspective Ministries. And so that's kind of his thing. He wants people focused on eternity. He believes that that's a problem in our current culture, that we don't have enough people focused on that. So one of the things, though, that he's found in conversation with people is that people, well-meaning Christians, believe heaven is going to be boring. And they don't look forward to it. It's bizarre. And these, I don't know, you're tempted to believe that a lot of that might be people that aren't heading to heaven. But I think there are enough people there that warrant you to consider this. Um, this is a quote he has in heaven. Our belief that heaven will be boring betrays a heresy that God is boring. There is no greater nonsense. Our desire for pleasure and the experience of joy come directly from God's hands. He made our taste buds. He put the adrenaline in our system. He gave us our sex desires and the nerve endings that convey pleasure to our brains. Likewise, our imaginations and our capacity for joy and exhilaration were made 
by the very God we accuse of being boring. Uh, people think it's going to be a worship service. And I can tell you, when I first started going to worship services, I thought they were boring. I was a brand new believer. I was on fire for God. And boy, I'd show up at that worship service and I felt like I stepped into a quicksand pit. But that fire of what you feel inside of you, we all know that that rarely comes in a worship service. And so too often we grow accustomed, though, to not having that fire in us either. We want it at the church service, and yet we realize too late that it should really be coming from us. It comes out of us and pours into this worship service. You know, we are the ones that bring it here. God brings it down on us, yes, but yet we must be participating in this. It's like sanctification. We come here to give ourselves to God, and we must do that to get what God wants us to get out of it, out of it. So another quote by Charles Spurgeon. This is short. To come to thee is to come home from exile, to come to land out of a raging storm, to come to rest after long labor, to come to the goal of my desires and the summit of my wishes. Uh, Heaven is called the eternal rest, the eternal tomorrow. And uh, the Sabbath is to be a picture of that. And so the rest that we experience with the Sabbath uh, is to be a picture of heaven. Uh, I remember a fellow that used to worship here, the the Haynes known real well, uh, Jim Bear. And uh, at one worship service seven or eight years ago, he plopped down next to me and he says, oh, Rod, I am so thankful for the Sabbath day. He had been working so hard all that week and he was exhausted and he was just so thankful that he could have a guilt-free day of where he could just enjoy not doing anything, not working hard. So the Sabbath is a training ground to teach us about heaven. We look forward. We should look forward to the Sabbath day. And that's why we can't make it a drudgery. Too many people are viewing Sabbath as a drudgery and they're viewing heaven as a drudgery. They're viewing worship services as a drudgery. All of that means that you're really not thinking right, that you've got to think more differently about your uh, work here on earth, your job here. So first, what is heaven? I think it's important that we address this kind of in a technical way. Uh, It occurs in the New King James Bible about 700 times. Now, there are multiple definitions, and we know this. You know, heaven is also uh, our atmosphere. But I just went through the beginning to just see where heaven begins to take on these spiritual connotations. The 19th occurrence in Genesis 21:17, you have God calling to Hagar out of heaven. She has just abandoned Ishmael to let him die. And he says, Hagar, you know, and so she listens to him. And yet it's his voice coming out of heaven. So here's where you kind of have the first instance of heaven being associated with God in this special way. The very next chapter, uh, Abraham is about to kill Isaac. And again, a voice comes from heaven. And then in Deuteronomy, we read this. Uh, This is a, a prayer Moses is speaking. Look down from your holy habitation from heaven. And so here is where we see that heaven is where God is. And that's really what our popular definition is, right? Heaven is where God is. And heaven is a part of this creation. Heaven isn't apart from us. Yes, it's invisible to us, but it is a part of this creation just as our spirits are a part of this creation. We can't see our spirits either. They're invisible to us, but they're in this world. They're in this creation. They're in this existence. Heaven is too. There is another word I want to introduce, and that is paradise. Heaven is to God as paradise is to sinless man. So God is in heaven. 
the sinless man is in paradise. And that's the picture that we had in the Garden of Eden. You had Adam and Eve that existed in paradise and God came down and walked with them. And as a matter of fact, when he found out that they'd sinned, that's the illustration that's used. God came to walk with them in the cool of the day. And yet then he says, where are you? And we're hiding and all that. But it would appear that God made a practice of that. He liked coming down to walk with man in the garden that he had created for him. So God was in heaven, and yet man was on paradise, but yet that was shared. Man was on the earth, but paradise was on the earth, and God could come to paradise and share with them. But that changed. So the fall changed this, and the fall brought sin, and sin is a destroyer. Sin changes everything. And we know this. When people sin against us, we know it. They might not know they sinned against us, but we sure do. Let me read Genesis chapter 3, and this is where Adam and Eve get booted out of the garden. It's the last three verses of Genesis 3, 22 to 24. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man. And he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the Tree of Life. Um, This is partly why I got sidetracked because I was talking to Pastor Kaiser about the Tree of Life. I kind of became obsessed researching that for a day or two. Um, And so I'm going to talk about that in late December. Uh, In two weeks I'll talk about hell. But this is kind of bringing up lots of my future topics as I've had to do this study. So man here is driven out of Eden. Not in a car for you little children that might not realize that. Driven means that he had to drive them out, flush them out like an animal. Adam and Eve didn't want to leave that garden. They had it good and they knew they had it good, but yet God drove them out. So then in just a few verses on, we have the murder of Abel. Cain kills Abel. Now what happened with the murder of Abel? And this isn't something that we normally talk about, but God Death had been brought into them because of their sin. And so we have this death. And death is what? Death is death. But there are two aspects of it, aren't there? We are two. We are both body and spirit. And so both our body and spirit are, are condemned to death. But yet, because God has mercy and because he clothed them with those animal skins, he's, he has this alternate. The body dies, right? So the physical body has died. And yet... It has left no home for the man's spirit. So Abel's spirit was then without a home. So God had provided a home for this spirit. And uh, Pastor Kaiser has talked about that. Sheol in Hebrew, Hades in Greek. And this holds the souls of the departed. And with uh, Jesus in the story of the rich man Lazarus, we see that there's this gulf that's fixed. And it's referred to as Abraham's bosom. And this is where these souls are. These two have gone to this place. And the saved souls are separated from the unsaved souls. So now, man has been corrupted. The fall has corrupted him. It has made this necessary that there's this temporary place for his spirit because his body has been destroyed by death. So, Genesis 3.17, also part of the curse was this. Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it, Cursed is the ground for your sake. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. So the creation was cursed. Man and kind was cursed. 
and the creation was cursed. And the creation doesn't like it. Paul writes in Romans 8, and I'll flip around a lot, so don't feel you need to turn with me. But in Romans 8, verses 18 to 23, we read this. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. So this is now focused on man. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly awaits for the revealing of the sons of God. Now it's creation. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who suggest, uh, subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. You can see here that Paul weaves mankind's situation together with the creation that he's in. Because we're part of this creation. God made this creation to support us. And it isn't like we're so very different from it, right? He made us out of the dirt. And so we are part of it, not in a pantheistic way, but in a very real way that God made the creation to support us. And it's a sad thing that it has also had to bear the brunt of the, of the curse. So the fall of man changed things, but so did the triumph of Christ. So did the resurrection. So I want to uh, look up two verses. I'll flip ahead to Colossians. And this is where we have uh, Christ triumphing over sin. In Colossians 2, verse 13 to 15. And you being dead in your trespasses... Oh, I'm sorry. No, that's it. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. He made a public spectacle of them. Christ has triumphed over principalities and powers and made a public spectacle. Now, I know Pastor Kaiser has already given you all the jigsaw puzzles here, but I remember them because I had to pull this all together. So we know the answer. When is it that this public spectacle occurred? Christ promised the thief on the cross that he would be be with him that day in paradise, remember? Well, when, what did Jesus do when he succeeded? When he, when he died on the cross and rose from the dead uh, in, in his success, what did he do? In Ephesians 4, beginning at verse 7, But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore he says, When he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this he ascended... What does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So, what did he do? He rescued these souls that were in Hades. He rescued these people that had been there. You know, and time is passing. This is a part of creation. They're not just in some soul sleep or something, you know, just, you know, set the snooze for a thousand years or whatever. You know, they're experiencing time. And this is a long time that they've waited to be taken from this place. And he triumphs over evil. 
Now, let me recap um, this timeline of heaven and earth that I've kind of introduced. I've introduced pieces of it, but I haven't really knitted it all together. There's an aspect of it, too, that had happened. We talk about man, we talk about creation, but there's something else. And what was it? The link between us and heaven was severed, was it not? And so, in other words, God had come down, remember? It was like he was walking with him. So sin changed that. We got booted out of the garden. Now there isn't this paradise in which God and man meet. There isn't this physical place where God and man can meet anymore. So, in creation, we had the heaven and the earth. We had that paradise with the tree of life. After the fall, but before Christ, we had man ejected from paradise. We had this Sheol storing the souls, both the saved and the unsaved. And we had, I think, before Noah's flood, the tree of life and perhaps even the Garden of Eden taken up in heaven to be with God in paradise. Because God isn't a wasteful God. He's going to save that tree of life. This is our tree of life. And though we have uh, fallen... He has a plan for redeeming us, and he's going to save this for us in the future. And we'll get to that more in December. But so now we also have after the fall, after Christ. We've had uh, Christ um, take these people out, send these souls to heaven, and we have just the unsaved being left in Sheol. And so now the separation has occurred. We've got the saved souls and the unsaved souls being separated, and they're being reserved for judgment. And I believe the, uh, the saved are being kept in paradise, just as Jesus said, right? He told the thief, today you will be with me in paradise. And so he's with him in paradise. Again, where God and man meet. Heaven's God's place, earth's man's place, and they, they meet in paradise. So man was created with body and spirit. And what did God say about all his creation? He said, it's very good. And so... Death destroys that bond. It separates body from spirit, and that's a bad thing. You know, the Greeks viewed it as a good thing. We don't. After death, when we've got these spirits in Sheol, and we've got these spirits up in paradise, this is abnormal. This isn't how God wants it. It isn't how he designed it. He has designed the remedy, but it's a big problem, and it needs to be resolved. And so after the judgment is when we will get our resurrected bodies. But in this intermediate period, we'll get to that in a minute, but it's a little bit different. So man was created to inhabit a body. But when we think of heaven, we're really trained not to think about bodies so much. Heaven's different. Heaven's ethereal. Heaven's kind of wispy, like smoke. And some blame Greek philosophers like Plato and the early Christian fathers like Philo and Origen, that basically brought that concept into Christianity. I blame cartoons. <laughs> I didn't read much Plato as a child, but I watched a lot of cartoons. And in cartoons, when people die, their body stays there, and this little wispy white thing with a halo and a, and a, a gown floats away and sits on a cloud. I mean, that's pretty much all the cartoons did that, you know? I never saw any alternative. So to me, that was my Sunday school. I mean, I'm just sitting there watching cartoons, and this is what I know about, you know, life after death. So Christ became a man not to save us, just, but he became a man to be a man. He will be a man forever. Christ will remain in the flesh forever. That's a remarkable thing. I mean, you know, the God of the universe 
needing to save us in this way should he set his heart upon us as he did and yet then to covenant with us forever to remain in the flesh with us. I mean, it's just incredible. Um, what is heaven like? And I've introduced kind of two concepts and we should discriminate between them. Um, heaven, there is an, what's called an intermediate heaven or a present heaven and that is the heaven that was created at creation. And yet the Bible promises a new heaven, a new earth and a new heaven in the future. So it's probably best to get our concept of what this intermediate heaven is like, where the people who have now passed on uh, and are believers are residing. And so uh, this example is from uh, Alcorn's book. It's in Revelation 6, verses 9 through 11. And I'll read this. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. There is a lot here. And I really don't believe that this is entirely figurative. I believe John is witnessing this. Did these uh, people, were they martyred a long time earlier? I doubt it. I believe that these were recently martyred people. And they're there, and this is where they're entering into paradise. And John sees this. He witnesses this. And so then we have them speaking. They're in heaven. And listen to all these things that is, we can uh, perceive from this. They're in heaven, so that means we know where they are. They're not on the earth anymore. They're not in the earth. Remember their lives on earth. They remember. They know what happened to them. They want justice for what happened to them. It's not that they're ethereal and they couldn't care less about what's going on in earth. I think that tends to be how we think of it. No, they're centric. The earth is centric to us and to our afterlife. So they anticipate justice. They are eager for justice. They're anxious for justice. They talk. They think. They're a little emotional about it, it would seem. And obviously they're conscious, they're sentient in all this. They talk to God and God answers them. So they're in communication with God. They know what's going on concerning the earth, although not exactly because they don't know what's going to happen. And so they're aware of time and they're distinct. It said each of them and they each got a robe. So they have some form of body, but they don't have their glorified resurrected body yet. Now, when had they been martyred? Recently. And when are the other people that are going to join them? going to be martyred. I don't know, you know, but, but here God just says when their fellow servants and their brethren. So it doesn't make it seem anyway to me like it's everybody. To me, it makes it seems like they're groups, that, that, that they're bringing up groups and that these people are co-located. They know one another. You know, another thing that I thought about, and I'm sorry, I'm interrupting my flow here, but um, languages, isn't that interesting? You know, I mean, how many language lines are we going to have when we get there into those lines? I mean, that's a lot of languages on the earth. Is there just instantly that we have some new heavenly language that everybody will automatically know? I don't know. I mean, it's just a lot of questions come up as you think about this stuff. So, we are promised a new earth. We're not used to thinking about a new earth. That's not in cartoons on Saturday morning, so I had no knowledge of that. But I did know about heaven, and yet the Bible is very explicit. It talks about both heaven and earth. We get it all. We get a new earth, we get a new heaven, we get a new paradise. So now what will the new earth be like? 
a lot like the old earth. I think it's because it's the same earth. It's going to be renovated, rejuvenated. Again, you know, God isn't wasteful. He's not just going to throw this earth away, you know, way out at the end of the universe or something. I think he's going to reclaim it. That's what God's all about. He's all about reclaiming. I mean, really, if he were, if he were wasteful like me and not recycling, he'd just have thrown me away, you know, throw him away, you know. But God's not. He's a recycler, really. So let me read from Second Peter, though, some of these things that seem to... Sh- and as a matter of fact, we read one there in Revelation 21, but let me read something from Second uh, Peter 3, verses 10 through 13. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So now this, I know when I first uh, have read that, it just seems obvious. This earth is going to burn up with fire. Um, But yet, when you compare it to the destruction of the earth before, by flood, it didn't annihilate the earth. The earth was destroyed, yes. But basically, God had the waters recede and then it was no longer. So everything on the earth was destroyed. And I believe the same thing is going to be true here. This earth is going to be cleansed by fire. 1 Corinthians actually gives us a good illustration of this, I think. It's talking about our works. Paul is talking about our works being burned up. Uh, 1 Corinthians 3:11 to 15. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. So I believe the same thing applies to our works, to us, to the earth. All of this is being rejuvenated by God. Um, John Piper, his reference for this, or his illustration for this, which of course, you know, he has a lot of good illustrations, um, but his is a caterpillar and a butterfly, you know. The caterpillar is destroyed in order to produce the butterfly. And so perhaps similar thing, you could think of our earth being re- renovated, rejuvenated in this way. Um, those of you who, uh, I, it was a long time ago, but I used an illustration from a movie called A Man Called Norman. Anybody remember that movie? Yeah, yeah A Man Called Norman. Um, and in this in this movie, it's about 50 minutes long, but there is this old crazy man that lives in town. And this pastor just happens to pick the house right across from his without knowing it. And this pastor is outside working, and suddenly he sees old Norman over across the street trying to start his mower. And he thinks, God, what have I done? What did you let me do, God, to buy this house across from old Norman? And so immediately he's thinking, he's blaming God. You know, what, what have you done to me, God? But so Norman's over there, and he's trying to get his mower started, and he feels guilty because normally if this was a normal neighbor, neighbor, he'd go help him. But Norman is anything but normal. But he goes over there to help him. Got some trouble. So he starts talking to him, and he befriends him, essentially. And he asks this Norman one day, Norman, have you ever thought about heaven? I've given it serious consideration, 
That's what Norman said. I mean, this, this pastor was just floored. He had no idea Norman would think like that. But so this man accepted Christ, and he cleaned him up to take him to church. And I mean, he said he, he had a, this, this totally sinful desire, you know, to wow people and bowl them over. And so he stuck Norman in a tub, and Norman probably hadn't been bathed in forever. And uh, he said it was just grease and caked in his hair. But he scrubbed him up in the tub, and this man came out just stellar, beautiful white hair. You know, he had him all groomed up and bought a new suit for him, and he took him to church, and he was just waiting to people to ask, who is this guy? And he couldn't wait to tell them it's Norman. And so everybody was, of course, surprised. But that's what God can do with us, right? That's what he does with us. We don't see the effect of it every day. We don't see the effect of it in one another every day, nearly as much as we would like. But that's what he's doing. It's a process. And yet, in the glorification, that's when, you know, it's all done. It's all finished. So, there's another reason why I believe the earth will not be destroyed as we know it. And it's from promises that God made to uh, Abraham. And in Genesis 13, you know, one of the, one of the early chapters uh, with Abraham, you have uh, Genesis 13, verses 14 to 17. And the Lord said to Abraham, this is right after Lot picked the, the, uh, the preferred land. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, Lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward, for all the land which you see I give to you and your descendants forever. I've often wondered about that. Does this forever, is this euphemistic? I don't think it is. We're Abraham's seed. And so God has given us the earth. When he was having Abraham standing there looking around, I've always perceived it as being Israel. This is the future Israel where Abraham's Jew Jewish descendants are going to go. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's the whole earth that he's essentially promising Abraham and his seed. Maybe. So anyway, that's another reason why I believe. And then also Jesus told in the Beatitudes, the meek shall inherit the earth. He doesn't say anything about a new earth, the earth. And I think there's such beauty in it too, such irony. Because this world is owned in many ways by wicked people, right? We know this. The wicked people get ahead. Uh, there's a good book by P.T. Sorokin on that, about how wicked people get ahead. There's a chapter in uh, Ben Hayek's book on that, about how the wicked get ahead in this world. And yet, they have their comeuppance coming to them. And part of it is that the meek will inherit all of what they now own. We get it. They don't. They get it taken away from them. So, there's another aspect of what this new earth will be like that I want to mention. It's in Revelation 21. It's the very first verse that we read. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and also there was no more sea. And so it's interesting, you know, why is that a big special point? Because the seas were with the original creation. Um, they were altered with the flood, but yet, why is there no sea? And there are various um, you know, reasons that people give for this, and, and some more metaphorical than others. But uh, it would seem to imply that there isn't any more of the evaporative system. You know, those of us who kind of have ever read about weather, you know how this whole system with the oceans and the seas and the evaporative effect and the rain and all that, it's all going to be different, obviously. And I think if the vapor canopy came back and made it like, you know, 72 degree, two degrees every day, my wife would be very pleased. She's not looking forward to winter. Uh, she's looking forward to going to California tomorrow, but not looking forward to winter.
But so anyway, this, this will be different. This earth will be renovated. It will be a little bit different. Now, what will heaven be like? Uh, Revelation 3, verses 11 through 12, the uh, Philadelphia church is being addressed. And Christ says, Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. This new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven is our new heaven, and it's mentioned here, and then it's also mentioned again over in Revelation 21, and let's go ahead and turn there. In what I read earlier, the first seven verses, Verse 4 speaks of there being no more death, sorrow, crying, or pain. Now, you have to really think about each one of these. How is it? Now, even in the garden, right? Was it that, Jesus, uh, that Adam suffered in no way? No way, absolutely. Couldn't he have been hungry? Couldn't he have pricked his finger? You know, you just have to ask yourself these questions. But we know the Bible is true, and we know that our imaginations are limited, and our experiences are limited. But there will be no more death. We understand that. That's, that's, that's an easy one. But does that mean there won't be any accidents? Does that mean that people can't fall off of something you know, to their death? Yeah, it means it can't happen. It, it, does it mean that they'll kind of like be a cartoon figure you know, where they fall off like in Matrix, you know, splat, just stand up? I don't know. But we know there is no death. And so we must accept the truth of it and have fun thinking about the reality of it, you know? I mean, what's, what harm is there? It's not like I'm going to go start a cult or anything, you know, and start, you know, proclaiming to people this is the way it is. But I think God wants us to imagine this stuff. It's fun. I enjoy it. I don't know. I hope you do. But we have uh, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain. Uh, but yet, we live on this earth. God has made us these beings, and we will have fun there. I believe we'll do all kinds of fun things. We'll go skiing, you know. We'll just do all the fun things that we got to do on earth about 100 million times better forever. Now, it doesn't mean we won't have responsibilities and duties and all that. We will. But yet, they'll all be integrated. I remember uh, I had a former manager that once called me well-integrated. I was like, what do you mean? <laughs> I'm well-integrated. He said, well, it means that you... He was trained in psychology, and so what he used was a psychological term. He says, well, you live out your principles, what you say you believe, you actually act on. I thought, well, I'm well integrated. I liked that, you know. I was flattered. But he doesn't know me that well, you know. I'm not entirely integrated. But uh, we find this abnormal, though. You know, this, this absence of fear and death and pain, and, and this all seems a little abnormal. We can't relate to it. And yet, we will one day. And so we just basically, just as in Hebrews 11.1, 1, talk about faith is the evidence of things, you know, hope for the substance of things, hope for the evidence of things unseen. That's what we have to do with this. We have to enjoy it, look forward to it, and know that it will be far better than we can imagine. There's one thing I want to do now, and that is I want to take you to this uh, handout that seems bizarre. Um, Mike needed a handout before 4, and at 1 o'clock, there was no way I was going to be able to give him an outline of what I was going to talk about. And so what I did is I just put together something like this that's a little interesting. 
I want to right now talk only about the first graphic that I have there in New York up here. Uh, Mike told me that I need to remind people what high rises are because some of the kids didn't know. Uh, they're big, tall buildings. New York City has over 5,500 big, tall buildings, more than any other city on earth. Our first national tower, that's which direction? That direction. It's, uh, it's 663 feet tall, and it would be the 51st uh, height building in New York. I was surprised at that. I mean, that's, that's out of 5,500, you know, I mean, it's in the top 1%. That's pretty cool. UP Center, the building I'm in, is the third tallest building in Omaha, and it would be 425th in New York City. It's just a little bit taller than the Ritz-Carlton in Central Park. The tallest building now on this earth is in Taipei, Taiwan. It's called the Taipei 101. Uh, and it is six, 1,667 feet tall. It's basically roughly a third of a mile. Uh, the fastest elevator is in that tower, and it goes about 40 miles an hour. Now, hopefully that's up. I guess down it could go as fast as terminal velocity would reach, but uh, if the cables can handle the strain, I guess. But so next year, there's a building being built in the United Arab Emirates that will be uh, 500 and some feet taller than that. And so that's if it's completed, I guess. So that's what I want to talk about, and now I want to read this text. This text is uh, uh, in Revelation. It is uh, 21, 9 through 16. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. See, this was mentioned earlier up here. Very first verse in 21. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And now here it is again, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. And she had a great and high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates and names written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. Three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. Now the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And he who talked with me had a gold reed to measure the city, its gates, and its wall. The city is laid out as a square. Its length is as great as its breadth. And he measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs. Its length, breadth, and height are equal. Then he measured its wall, 144 cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is, of an angel. Um, how long is a furlong? Anybody here do horses, go horse racing, the racetrack? Furlong is an eighth of a mile. And so the city that is described here is about 1,500 miles wide, about 1,500 miles deep, and about 1,500 miles high. 1,500 miles high. Do we believe this? Or is this just hyperbole? I tell you, I'm not, I'm not impressed when I read commentaries on the book of Revelation. Everybody's just like, oh, obviously this is an you know, exaggeration, blah, 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 the metaphor. It's like, I believe it. I mean, why is it so hard to believe? Now, granted, you know, some of these people wrote these commentaries a few hundred years ago, and we had nothing to compare something like this to, nothing on earth. And so they chose to soften this and make it 
And granted, Revelation is filled with metaphors, and yet, how do we know this is not a, uh, this is not a metaphor? Well, it sure seems real to me. It's mentioned three times, and he, and he specifically mentions the length and the width and the height and, and that this angel measured it. Why would you do this if it's not meant to convey truth? And this is coming down from heaven. Do you know how big this is? This little map here, it's like impossible for you to read, I know, unless you have much better eyes than me. But this extends from Yellowstone National Park to Lake Michigan and from Baja, California, the long island that stretches down, to the middle of the Gulf of Mexico beyond Mobile. That's the footprint. That's the footprint of the New Jerusalem, this city that John sees coming down from heaven. That's how big it is. So, what do we make of that? Especially, John's getting to watch it descend from the sky, like close encounters of the third kind or something. I mean, you know, it just kind of makes you shiver thinking that we can either witness this or we can actually be in it. We could be in this city at that time because it's coming down from heaven, right? And where are all the departed souls that God has saved? They're in heaven. And so he's made this new heaven that comes down to the new earth to be used by us. We talked earlier, heaven is God's home, earth is man's home, paradise is where God and man dwell together. And so our greatest joy, of course, is not skiing forever, it's being with God forever. And that's what we will have. You know, maybe for some of us, skiing is kind of like hell. You know, I've been on skis once and I didn't really much like it. Uh, I spent the rest of the two days just sitting in the cabin. I had a lot more fun. So now, what will, be, what will life be like on this new heaven, on this new earth? Will we be bored, as these people fear? Well, we will own the earth, right? Christ has given it to us as an inheritance. We will own it. How will we own it? I believe we'll own it just like we own stuff now, with deeds and the whole nine yards. We'll have, we'll have uh, businesses, we'll have, we'll have uh, commerce, all of this. Why do we think that, that won't be what it's like? I believe that's exactly what will be what it's like. Revelation 21:24 says that there will be kings on the earth and those godly and just rulers will come to pay obeisance to God at this New Jerusalem. This is God's capital city on earth, 1,500 miles square. If we are impressed with Washington, D.C., if we are impressed with other capital cities, this is a little bit better. It's a little bit bigger. bigger. As a matter of fact, I had some statistics worked out. If we have a high-rises in the New Jerusalem that are 1,500 miles high, you know how long it would take the fastest elevator on earth to reach the top? 40 hours. I think God will have faster elevators too. <laughs> Maybe we won't need elevators, you know? Maybe we just teleport around. I don't know. You can still fly for fun, but, you know, you can just teleport for speed. You know, you're in a hurry. So 1 Corinthians 6.3 uh, Paul said, we will judge angels. Uh, Revelation 22.5 says, we are to reign with Christ in heaven. And as the pastor mentioned earlier, we're already seating, seated with Christ in the heavenlies. And in Revelation 22, the very first verse, and he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. God's throne is right there in the middle of this new Jerusalem. And the river of life will flow from his throne. And if you can imagine earth, Imagine Earth, it's what, about 8,000 miles in, in uh, diameter because it's about 25,000 miles around. And you've got a capital city 
that sticks off the earth 1,400, 1,500 miles, right? It's like a crown. I mean, it, you could really picture it as kind of like a crown sitting on top of the earth. So I believe God, Christ is going to be the king and his city is like a crown. It crowns the earth. So will we be bored? I don't think so, you know? I think we just lack imagination if we think that we're going to be bored in heaven. Uh, please don't think you'll be bored. We will uh, be able to travel. I mean, traveling just within that city, if it's, if it's truly real and it's not figurative like so many uh, commentators say, uh, 1,500 miles cubed, that's huge. And then not to mention that, you get to travel all through the earth. Maybe we even get to travel through space. You know, we've got a lot to look forward to. I want to end with two verses. Uh, John 14, verses 1 through 3, uh, in there Jesus said this, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So here we have both. We have our place and God with us. It doesn't get any better than that. And then 1 Corinthians 2.9. Paul, who has seen, I believe, some of these things by this time. I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Father, we thank you for this glimpse of heaven. Uh, Lord, we know that our imaginations are weak. Uh, you have created us with very vibrant imaginations, Lord, and sometimes they get us into trouble even. But it is just unimaginable what heaven will be like. And so we recognize our inability to do your heaven justice. And so we pray, Father, that we will accept uh, the reality by faith, that it will be so much better than what we imagine. Uh, we sell you so far short when so many of us think that heaven will be boring. Lord, you have saved us and you have equipped us on this earth to do your will. And we pray that we would not be so heavenly minded, that we would be of no earthly good. Uh, we know, Lord, that you have commanded us to lay up treasure in heaven where moth and rust do not corrupt and destroy. And so we pray, Father, that by our lives on this earth, we will be seriously laying up treasure, that we would enjoy it uh, forever in heaven in the mansions that you've provided. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.